Alright, so maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll start. It's already uh, 8.35, try to start on time. I just want to, I'm not going to say much at all. We're leaving time for, um, But uh, it's always a, uh, a big pleasure to have Adler Parrish joining us in the country club section of TNEC. The first time, I think, this is the first time in the shul? First time, yeah. First time in the shul. Um, we want to thank Ruben and Lisa for sponsoring this event. Um, I don't, I don't need to give much introduction to Rabbi Paris, but he does just amazing, amazing work with the Jewish community of the entire state of South Dakota. Is that fair to say? It's Pretty much. Best, yeah. But yeah, and uh, just incredible, incredible work. The opportunities we've had to hear from him before are, are, are mesmerizing in terms of the Abbas Yisrael and the work to, to bring Jews closer to, to Yiddishkeit. And so it's always just, an, we, we thought there's no better, you know, topic, individual, to bring Rosh Chodesh Av than somebody who spends their life spreading Av Eschinom. Uh, certainly something we all need to be, we, we could all use as a model for ourselves, and certainly uh, something we all need to work on. So without further ado. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. I um, want to first uh, thank the shul, the young Israel of Tinek, the Asra, for welcoming me so warmly, for um, Ruven and... Uh, his wife, Eliza Eshes Chavar Kechavar, for taking care of me and bringing me here. And of course, uh, Larry and Barbara as well. It's very special to be back in Tinek and very special to be in the shul. So thank you. This Shabbos, the Shabbos before um, Tisha B'Av, is known as Shabbos Chazayin. It gets its name, Shabbos Chazayin, after the Haftarah, Chazayin Yeshayahu. And... Rabbi Levietz has a very interesting teaching about this Shabbos. He says, yes, the general reason why it's called Shabbos Chazoin is because of the vision of Yeshaya in the Haftarah. But on a personal level, every single Yid, the Neshama of every single Yid, also has a vision this Shabbos. And it's a vision of the Beis HaMikdash. Hashem comes and gives us each a vision of the Beis HaMikdash, and therefore it's also a personal Shabbos Chazayin, not just named after the Haftarah. And he explains this idea with a mushal. He gives an example. He says, we had the first Beis HaMikdash, it was destroyed. We had the second Beis HaMikdash, it was destroyed. And now Hashem gives us a vision of the third Beis HaMikdash. What is this like? This is like a parent who prepares a beautiful suit, a beautiful garment for his child takes his child to the tailor, bespoke, it's perfectly measured, and, you know, after a few weeks, it's a little boy, he goes, plays soccer, he plays football, and his suit is in shambles. He doesn't know how to take care of it properly. The father's a loving father, so before he knows it, he prepares another one for his child. And again, the same thing happens. The third time, the father takes his child, gets the kid measured, but this time says he's not ready to give him the suit. Hangs it up in the closet and he tells his child, when you can appreciate it, when you understand the value of what this is, I'll give it to you happily. And in the meantime, every once in a while, he takes it out and he shows it to his son. And he says, you see this suit? This is similar to the two suits that you used to have. It's even better. And at the right time, You'll get, this, uh, you'll get this one as well. And Rebbe Yitzchak says, this is the vision that our neshamas have 
this week, as we approach the time of Tisha B'Av, of the Churban Beis HaMikdash, of course, the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash is something that's very dear and very important to all of us. We say it in our davening every day, Shiabana Beis HaMikdash, and also the destruction, the Churban of the Beis HaMikdash, is something that's equally as important and as on our minds. Like the Gemara says, if the Beis HaMikdash wasn't built in your days, it's as though it was destroyed. Sometimes we can think, you know, this is something that took place thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, the second Beis HaMikdash. Even earlier than that, the first Beis HaMikdash, there have been so many other tragic events and occurrences that happened to the Jewish people since then that can mean so much more. And the Gemara says, if it wasn't rebuilt in your times, it's as if you actually witnessed it um, being destroyed. And then, of course, we come to Tisha B'Av, a very, very uh, Chabad Yom Tov. Um, that's, that's a little pun, because there's... Uh, in Tisha B'Av, in Chabad, isn't really... It's not a day where, which we celebrate much. You know, we do what we need to do. We say kinnis, we come to shul. But there's not many events for Tisha B'Av, generally. There's not many programs. Um, the programs are usually on other Yom Tovim. And Tisha B'Av, we just do what we need to do. But we're talking about Tisha B'Av for a very interesting reason. Because when you look at the halachas of Tisha B'Av, you see something very interesting. We all know we come to shul by night. We sit on the floor. We sit on low chairs. Um... In the morning as well, by kinnis, it's low, it's low chairs. But then comes chatzois, the afternoon time already, you could sit on the regular seats. This is Shulchan Aruch tells us this. And the Ramah adds also about Nachim, the special tefillah of comfort. When do we say that? We say that in the afternoon, by Mincha. The tefillah of Hashem comforting the Yidin for the Churban, for the destruction. <coughs> so when you see these halachas, it appears that... As the day moves on, we've already passed the main part of the destruction, the main part of the Chorban, so we can lessen the issues of Avelis a little bit. We can lessen the things that we do to commemorate the Chorban, and we can move on, transition a bit already to, you know, to the comfort. But when you look in the Gemara, that's the source of these halachas, the source of what we do on Tisha B'Av. We actually see something very interesting. The Gemara says that they came into the Beis HaMikdash on the 7th. They started messing around, destroying, being disrespectful on the 7th and 8th. The night of the 9th is when they lit fire, and it burned for 24 hours, a full 24 hours. So the main burning, the main destruction was actually later. It was in the afternoon and the next night. And Rabbi Yechlin says, Ilu sham la city, because that's when it was burned. He says if he was there, when they made Tisha B'av, he would have made it Yud of, because that's when the main destruction, destruction takes place. Yet we see the Minhagim, the customs, the halachas that we do of mourning are mainly done earlier in the day. So the Arizal and Shah Kavanis asks, what's going on here? Why is it that when the destruction is actually taking place, we're not doing those, those items of mourning, of Avelis? And he says, there's an interesting pasuk in Tehillim. There's a mizmar. And he says, when you understand this pasuk in Tehillim, <clears throat> you know what the Gemara and the Medrash says about it, we can get an insight. The, the pasuk says, mizmar la'asav, um, timu goyim ashe chalecha. 
the Mizmor Asaf, a song from Asaf, a song, a Mizmor by Asaf. They entered into your sanctuaries. They desecrated your uh, your holy places. And the Gemara says, when was this said? When did Asaf say this? During the Chorban. As the destruction is taking place, he says this Mizmor, that they came in and they, and they destroyed it. And the Gemara asks, Mizmor la'asaf? It should say Kina la'asaf. Why is it a Mizmor la'asaf? He's talking about the destruction. He's talking about the Goyim coming in and burning the base of Mikdash. Why is it called a Mizmor? It should be a Kina. And the Medrash gives a very interesting explanation on this. The Medrash says, a father prepared a chuppah for his child, for his son. Beautiful chuppah. And then the son went off and, you know, went on to promiscuous ways. So the father didn't want to have this chuppah, so he went and destroyed the whole thing. The son's tutor saw the father destroying it, and he took out his flute and started playing a song. And everybody says to him, why are you singing this song? He says, I'm singing this song because the father could have went and beat up his son. Instead, he just beat up the chuppah. And the medrash says, what happened? What's Asaf singing about? Asaf is singing because the Beis HaMikdash is being destroyed. And the Arizal quotes on this medrash and the Gemara that talks about it. And he says, what happened at that moment? Until then, the Yidin who were there in Yerushalayim thought, they're being surrounded. The walls were breached. They're going to all be killed. All the Yidin are going to be killed. It's going to be a genocide. There's going to be nothing left of us. But then, when they saw that Hashem allowed the Beis HaMikdash to be destroyed, the Beis HaMikdash to go up in flames, they realized that Hashem was letting out His fury on the Eitzim and Avonim, on the, on the wood and on the stones, and not on the Bnei Yisrael. And they realized that in those very moments, the darkest and harshest times of the Golas, when the Beis HaMikdash was literally being destroyed, in that, they were able to rejoice. Because they knew that however difficult it is, and however dark it gets, the bond that Bnei Yisrael have with Hashem remains. And nothing can change that, even if it means the Beis HaMikdash is being destroyed. And to that end, we see the Gemara disc- dis- discusses what did the Kruvim in the, Mish- in the Beis HaMikdash look like, the Kruvim of the Aaron. And the Gemara says there's two opinions, of course. One says the Kruvim were facing one another. And the other opinion says they were facing outside. It's a stira, this is a contradiction. The Gemara says, no, it's not a contradiction. When the Yidin were doing what Hashem wanted, and they were in a loving relationship with Hashem, the Kruvim were facing one another. When they were misbehaving, so the Kruvim faced outside. How's the Aran described at the time of the Churban? that they came into the Hechel and they saw the Kruvim were facing one another. In that very moment, in the very moment, the darkest time in our history, when the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash was taking place, the greatest expression of Hashem's love was on display, that the Kruvim were facing one another. And that's why the Arizal explains on Tisha B'av, even though really the destruction is taking place throughout the day and throughout that night, we already stop some of the Avelas earlier on in the morning, and ready by afternoon, we're already able to say Nachim, because at those moments, we know that Hashem is with us, and our bond is there, very strong, and the love of Hashem is revealed at that time. And we started with a 
a mention of Rebbe Yitzchak Rabbeinu is known as the <coughs> Sanigura of Yisrael, the the defender of Bnei Yisrael. <coughs> so I recently heard a, a beautiful story of uh, Rebbe Yitzchak that connects with the story of the Rebbe. So I want to share it. There was um, <coughs> uh, a writer um, in Israel. His name was Nathaniel and Moore. He was originally a very, very strong, passionate Zionist, part of the Lehi gang, fought the British. Um, but then, soon after the establishment of the state, he sort of soured on his uh, Zionism and, you know, took a more pro-Arab approach, to put it mildly. And he was a gifted writer, so he would write. Um, and he, you know, exposed different things. And in Israel, it was very, very inflammatory. People didn't really like what he was doing. Um, that wasn't the only thing he wrote about, but you know that was one of his one of his items that he wrote about. Um, in 1973, uh, a fellow in Crown Heights by the name of Gershon Jacobson started a Yiddish newspaper called the Algemeine Journal. Now, this Nathaniel Amor also wrote in Yiddish, so you're looking for Yiddish writers. There's not many, so you asked him if he can contribute to the paper as well. He's not just writing about Israel. He's writing about all different things. He writes in Yiddish. Okay, you're not going to be censored. You have a column here. Fine. This goes on for several years. Comes uh, 1977. Nathan Moore is in New York during Tishrei time. So Gershon Jacobson says, come to my house. We'll have a Rosh Hashanah meal at my home. He comes, spends Rosh Hashanah dinner. Uh, by Jacobson, and then Jacobson says at the end, you know, the next day is uh, a fabrengen, the Rebbe's going to have a fabrengen, and at the end of the fabrengen, the Rebbe gives kushal bracha, pours wine from his cup to everybody who comes, come, I'll introduce you to the Rebbe. This wasn't exactly Nathan Yellen Moore's cup of tea, but, you know, he respected the, the Rebbe's position, the Rebbe's uh, person, so, yeah, he'll come, doesn't hurt. So he comes to the fabrengen, and at the end, by Kershaw Bracha, when the Rebbe's pouring the wine, so Jacobson brings him and introduces him um, to the Rebbe and says, uh, this is uh, Natan Yalin Mor. So the Rebbe says, uh, he speaks Yiddish, of course, the Rebbe says, Das bist du, like, this is you. So he says, yeah, and, you know, he's like, he's enjoying it, that the Rebbe knows who he is. Um, and the Rebbe says to him, that you're not afraid of people that I know because, you know, you write things that people don't like. What's happening with your fear of heaven? So he says, you know, he doesn't want doesn't to lie, doesn't want to, you know, he's not, a, not exactly a, a believer or whatever he is. So he says, Rebbe metracht, ayitracht, thinking. So the Rebbe says to him, What's there so much to think about? So he didn't want to. He didn't want to lie. He wanted to respect the Rebbe. So he says, like the story of Levi Yitzchak And he didn't say what he's referring to. What's the story that he had in mind? The story is that Levi Yitzchak is walking in the street on Kippur or Shabbos, and he sees somebody smoking. And he says to him, uh, Rabbi Yid, it's, uh, it's Shabbos today. You can't smoke. He says, uh, I know it's Shabbos. 
and I'm smoking. He says, you know, you're not, you're not allowed to smoke on Shabbos. He says, I know it's Shabbos. I know I'm not allowed to smoke. I'm doing it anyway. I don't believe. So Rebbe Yitzchak looks up to heavens and he says, look how precious a Yid is. He doesn't want to say a lie. So <clears throat> with telling the Rebbe, you know, like the story of Rebbe Yitzchak, <laughs> he had a mind to say, Ali, I'm telling you the truth. I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. You ask me what's with my Yid Shema, I'm going to say, Yitracht. I'm thinking... So the Rebbe then goes on and says to him, the difference is, Levi Yitzchak Baditchev was talking about somebody else. You're talking about yourself. So he was very, you know, very taken by that. that the Rebbe knew, understood right away what he was alluding to with his story and the way the Rebbe responded to him, which you know, he felt was talking straight to, to the point of where he was coming from. And then the Rebbe continued and told him, look, you write a column, um, and you're gifted, you have to use out your talents for the good and keep writing. He's like, you read, you read what I write? You agree with what I write? And I says, no, I don't agree with everything that you write. Not everything that one reads does one agree with, but Hashem gave you a talent, you have to use it. You can't leave your space empty. If you have a gift from Hashem, you have to use it. Um, and that was that. That was the, that was the conversation. A few days later, he came back to 770. He had, he had written a book. He wanted to present it to the Rebbe. He comes and gives the Rebbe his book that he wrote. And the Rebbe says to him, do you remember what we spoke about? We spoke about uh, that you have a gift, you have a talent, and you have to use it out. And you don't want to make me into a chayta. You don't want to make me into a sinner. He looks at him and says, how do I make, how can I cause the Rebbe to be a chayta? He says, if someone speaks Tvarim Batalim, someone speaks things that come, don't come to fruition, could lead to sin. So by you not accomplishing and using your skill, after we spoke about that, you know, that can lead, that can lead me to, uh, you know, to the not good place. He says, no, he you know, took that very, very personally. That was sort of involving himself into his own life in that way. Anyway, that go, that's the end of, of the episode. A few years later... Yellen Moore is diagnosed with cancer um, and he's becoming weaker and weaker and you know his writing starts getting a bit slower instead of going from every week it's every few weeks every month and a half and then he submits two articles to Jacobson and he says publish these after I pass away these will be my last two articles publish them after I pass away a few months later he passes away and Jacobson publishes these articles. What does he write in these articles? He goes through his whole life story, how he grew up with you know, a Jewish background back in the old country. And then he came and what he did for, for Eretz Yisrael in the early years and how he sort of soured. And he describes the whole story that he had with the Rebbe on Rosh Hashanah and the story of Levi Yitzchak and the Rebbe telling him to keep using his talent. And he says, why am I asking this to be published now? He says, I know now I'm standing before Bezdin Shalmaila and they're looking through everything that I did in my life. I'm hoping that this will at least be one schus that I have, that I listened to what the Rebbe says, I was honest, I took it seriously. Um, and this at least should be, when the public is reading this now, in these moments, it should be a, a schus for me. So, in a way, this was a bit of a transformation for him. In a way, it was almost like a little bit of a, a tshuva at the last moments of his life, or even after his life, 
having lived through the way he did and doing everything that he did in a very hostile way to many Jewish people, he felt uh, there was still space for him to come back and there was still, the door was still open. And that is the story of Levi Yitzchak and that's what the Rebbe tried to do with Nathaniel and Moore and that's what the Rebbe wants all of us to do with other Jewish people, with each other, that the door is always open and that's what we try to do in South Dakota, to show our brothers and sisters that the door is open for them and that there's a way in. It doesn't matter how far removed they've been, how many years it's been. And it comes to home in a very real way when we have um, in our preschool two children who are great-great-great-grandchildren of Leviat's Kovaditchev, um, who by one way or another landed in South Dakota um, and a year and a half ago when they had a little baby brother the name of the, of the boy is Levy um, because they feel a certain closeness they recognize who they are who they are you know, in the small sense descendants of Levy but in the bigger sense they're part of B'nai Yisrael there's a home for them and they belong as much as I belong and it's the same thing that we're experiencing with a young couple that we just were fortunate to marry off a few weeks ago. That both the boy and the girl come from very, very, very from families. But through one way or another, they each ended up in South Dakota. In Sefer Yoyna, it talks about Yoyna Hanavi. It says, Mehavaya Hubereach, Mehashem Hubereach. They literally ran away. They wanted to leave everything from the communities behind. And when I met the boy a couple years ago, um, you know, it was nice for him to, you know, to, to meet someone that sort of speaks the same language, although he was far removed from everything. Um, so he said, you know, maybe we'll learn something once in a while. And he was excited about that. Not so much because, you know, he believed or wanted to, you know, make any commitment in Yiddishkeit, but just, you know, to have somebody that speaks your language a little bit, meeting a, another Yid, you know, that sort of, that sort of thing. So let's, let's get a time together to learn. Anyway, I don't hear back from him two, three weeks. I text him what's going on. He says, I can't. Why? She won't let me. I'm like, what do you mean? Tell me what she said. It sounds exciting. Tell me what she said. He says, I came home. I told her, you know, I met you and that we're going to get together and learn. And she looked at me and says, no way. You're not allowed to do that. Why not? She says, we came here to get away from this. <laughs> not how, in South Dakota you're going to start learning. It's, just, it's not going this way. So I said, you know what? She's right. Can't. We're not going to learn. You, gotta, you have to listen to her. We're not going to learn. Anyway... Time goes by, I still, you know, meet him for coffee dates or whatever it is, you know, keep in touch, but we're not, we're not learning nothing. Um, a week before Purim, this was probably just after Tishrei time, a week before Purim, I sent him a text, I said, you know, we're having a party, it'd be great if you guys could come. I wasn't expecting him or, you know, or the girl to come, but, you know, just figured Purim is a... You know, it was a fun time. Who knows? It was the first thing I invited them to, you know, after 
all that, uh, you know, from when he said he's, you know, we're not learning. Comes to the Purim party, they both show up. Now, when she walks in, she's, you know, as red as a tomato because she knows that I know what happened. She knows that I know, you know, who she is, where she comes from, and, you know, she feels a little embarrassed. But, you know, I didn't say anything. We just welcomed them. They came. They enjoyed. Um, And from then, that was, you know, in a way, the turning point. Over a year and a half later, um, they both got married in a fully kosher... To each other. Yeah, to each other. (laughs) In a fully kosher wedding. um, In a fully kosher wedding. um, And now they're very, very excited about helping build a mikvah because they know how important that is for the continuation of their, of their Jewish married life. Um, their families, some of their families who came in, um, you know, from Muncie area, from other places, um, couldn't believe it. Literally couldn't believe it. Relatives of theirs called me up, you know, in the weeks before the wedding saying how you know, what a simcha this is, how they can't, they can't believe that, you know, each one is marrying a Jewish person and how they're getting married and how it's going to be, you know, a proper, a proper chasna. Um, so these, you know, these are some of the stories. And just sort of a more, on a lighter note, uh, we were having some wonderful sushi here before. So this, is a, this ties in very much with New Jersey, not just because of Larry and Barbara, who last year at Tishrei said, we have to do something interesting for Tishrei. In South Dakota, what could we do? What could we do for sukkahs? And Larry's like, Sioux Falls sushi sukkah. <laughs> so we did sushi in the sukkah, but very sounds great. But there's no kosher sushi restaurant. So what are we gonna do? Um, Minneapolis has a kosher caterer to get sushi from them. By the time it's gonna get from Minneapolis to us, it'll be like, you know, you'll be eating napkins. So I figured we've got to be creative. I started calling up all the sushi restaurants in town. And I said, you know, I'm having a party in my house. Could you send a chef over? We'll buy all the ingredients and just make it in our house. They're like, no, well, why make it in your house? We have a perfect kitchen. We'll prepare it all. We'll bring it just in time for your party. I said, no, I want them to experience, you know, watching the chef. <laughs> I want them to, you know, most of them, they think I'm crazy. Never heard of something like this. Finally, one restaurant says, yeah, we actually have a, a chef available that will ha- you know, have some time on the day that you need. Um, I said, okay, great, I'll come in and we'll, you tell me what I need to buy um, and we'll do it. I walk into the restaurant. I, you know, as I come into the door, this uh, Japanese guy standing there starts laughing, laughing. He's like, now I know why you need the party in your house. You need it to be kosher. (laughs) What's his story? He worked here. He had just come to Sioux Falls. He had worked in a kosher uh, place in Lakewood. (laughs) So he knew everything. And then he tells me throughout the next, you know, the next few days as we're buying everything. So, you know, know, rice vinegar and, you know, know, the, the, the different ingredients. So I send him pictures. I go to the store and I send him pictures of this one or that one. He's like... One of, the, one of them I sent him is like a star K, a triangle K. He says, in Lakewood, they didn't like this one. <laughs> you want to get the one that has the OU on it. <laughs> so, that was all my, all my uh, sushi kashras questions. We have the in-house, uh, the in-house Japanese rub. Um, 
so of course that that of course brought the simcha of yomtiv to people in a very very special way. Um, and these are you know these are the neshamas that we see in uh, in South Dakota. There's a woman um, who's part of the community who grew up in a little tiny place in Idaho, and growing up, her whole connection with Yiddishkeit were the two bachrim that would come in the summer, the two Chabad bachrim that would come in the summer visiting little towns. Her father had uh, her father is originally from the old country born in a, in a small town, um, came over to Eretz Yisrael in the early 50s, got married there, and after a couple years, for whatever reason, moved to Idaho. And she grew up in Idaho. Um, but her only time she saw people that you know resembled Yiddishkeit were the two Bachram that would come. She grows up, she goes to schools out east, has her own little journey in uh, in Yiddishkeit, and now she lives in uh, in South Dakota, and she's part of, she's very much part of what we do, and she's also very very involved in the reform shul. And this is also a little bit of an insight, a little bit of a perspective that you have into the nature of the Jewish community in South Dakota where every single person matters, every single person counts. Her, for many years, her whole involvement with Yiddishkeit was the two Bachram that would come. And she moved very much, a, part, a big part of the reason why she moved to South Dakota, she had different job opportunities, was because it was a preschool, it was a place where her children could go. But at the same time, she also has, you know, other ideas that, that speak to her. Um, and, what we're in South Dakota for is to allow every single Yid a door, a way in, a place to come. And that's what we try to do. In other communities, you know, the walls might sometimes be a little more apparent. You know, the boxes might be a little more apparent. But when you come to a small Jewish community, a place literally that you have to drive hours and hours to you know, to find another minion. Throughout the summer, we get calls, you know, t- tourists coming through, traveling. So, where should I stay if I want to be within the Erev? <laughs> Minnesota, yeah. Exactly. Um, you know, th- those are, the, because when, when you sort of live within traditional Jewish life, and these things, you know, are so common, you almost forget that life can exist without it. And certainly when it comes to kosher food or minyanim a few times a day and multiple minyanim for, for the different davenings, um, you sort of, uh, you know, you take these things for granted. This is what Ruben mentioned to me a few times that um, you see from starting, you know, the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya talks about every yid has a neshama. And you just need to, you know, ignite the spark and it's, you know, it's all going to lighten up. And, you know, in a way you look at that, you say, hey, this is, just, this is a great uh, philosophical, theological idea. But is it really practical? Does it really happen? And today we're living the experiments, not the experiments, the results of those things. You see Yidin, in the middle of nowhere, all they need sometimes is an open door, an opportunity to light a Shabbos candle, to put on its fill-in, to, to read some Aleph base, to learn something. Every person on their own on their own level. 
every person where they're at. And they come and they get excited and they participate. Some faster, some, some takes a little more time. Some, you know, in stronger ways, some in other ways. But the spark of the Yid is there. I think I'm, I may have mentioned this story one of the other times I was here, but it's, it's such, for me, it was one of the most powerful things that I saw. There's a woman who died in, uh, in South Dakota and I came to, you know, to help with a Tara and, you know, and this and that. And anyway, I'm speaking to her daughter. Um, she had gotten to this tiny little town about 60 miles out of Rapid City. They had lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, they were part of the Jewish community, but they got disenfranchised. They decided that's it. They're leaving. They're running away. They were, you know, very, very simple people. Didn't really have anything. They weren't, you know, welcomed in their shul um, in Pennsylvania too much. So they wanted to have nothing to do with Yiddishkeit, with the community, with organized Jewish life. They lived in this tiny little shtetl. And, you know, over this, she passed away probably two or three years after I was living there. So in the year or two before then, I had met them, um, you know, I, came once a year to give them matzah, you know, a little connection. And anyway, when she passed away, she wanted me to, to be involved in that. So that, you know, that was very interesting because she had been very, very far removed from anything. And the fact that she, you know, asked that I should participate, you know, I thought, you know, this is, there's something going on here. So I'm speaking with the daughter and preparing for the, you know, for the funeral, asking, you know, some, if she can share some things with me. Um, about her mother, and she says every day her mother would say Shema twice, in the morning and at night. This is a woman who's completely disconnected from any Jewish life, was treated terribly by her shul, decided to live in a place where nobody else would know that she's Jewish, where she wouldn't have to do with any Jewish people. But every single day she said Shema twice. And I told the daughter that I wish I could say Shema the way that woman says Shema. Yeah, you, know, you wake up in the morning, you say Shema, part of your routine. You daven, you this, you that. Does it really speak to you? Does it really mean something so precious to you? This was her whole Yiddishkeit. And that's the way we need to say Shema. We need, when we daven, when we say these things, we need to appreciate. What are we saying? What is it that we're living? When we're fortunate to, to live um, you know, off the fat of the land, we're... Torah mitzvahs is, is easy. We have to also be able to take those things very seriously and live them in a very, very real way. Take those experiences of Levi Yitzchak and be able to apply them with other people. If we know Aleph, we share Aleph. If we are able to bring another Yid closer to Yiddishkeit in any way, you don't need to be a, a shliach in South Dakota to do it. You could be have any sort of profession. It's not just something for... A rub, it's not just something for an educator. It doesn't matter. What, whatever your profession is, there's other Jewish people that you know, that you meet, that you interact with. You could say something to them that can have such a change in their whole outlook, in their whole attitude when it comes before. Just the way you say good Shabbos to them. Just the way you talk to them before Yantav. Yeah, you're not coming to for any specific reason, you're a colleague at work or you just know them by one way or another, and they see that you're living Yiddishkeit in such a meaningful way, it shares uh, inspiration with them as well. So this is just a little a little of the South Dakota experiences um, 
and we should uh, we should merit soon the rebuilding of the base of Mikdash in its uh, in all its glory. Amen. 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 Amen.